You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 84, by Rudolf Steiner, his last public lectures, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 5, entitled The Physical World and Moral Spiritual Impulses, Four Stages of Inner Experience, given in Dornach on the 21st of April, 1923. In our recent reflections, we have been considering the etheric and astral bodies that, besides the physical body, indwell our human being. We showed how the etheric body, or body of formative forces, can be apprehended if we become aware of the inner life of thinking. The body of formative forces can be perceived when we become aware of this inner vitality of thinking in such a way that we live within it without being influenced by outward sense impressions. When this thinking also is not stimulated by our combining and interrelating of sense impressions, but when we endeavor, rather, to experience thinking's intrinsic weaving and surging through our own unsullied activity, without the usual stimulus for thinking from outward sense impressions. This experience of thinking is at the same time an experience of the etheric world. Yesterday, I described how this inner rousing of thinking that we undertake, which really isn't all that hard to achieve, leads us to an experience of the second human being within us. And this experience is also that of possessing a kind of temporal body, which is not so quietly enclosed in space as the physical body, but fluctuates continually is in continual motion. Only momentarily can it be observed in a spatial sense, and then only in the form of contours. But our experience of this temporal body gives rise in turn to the panoramic tableau of our life, which unfolds before our inner eye the whole unified span of our life on earth so far. E-Y-E. Basically, we dwell here within a very soul-spiritual occurrence, when, by an inward grasp of thinking, we enter the etheric life of the universe. In this imaginative, weaving life of the soul that gives us an experience of the etheric realm, we no longer feel the shadowy quality that the life of the mind normally has for us. We no longer feel the dreamy quality that soul life possesses in ordinary consciousness. Nor do we feel ourselves so shut off from the world as we do within the physical body, where we feel enclosed in our skin. Instead, we feel the outer world stream into us and our own being stream out into it. We feel ourselves to be a moving part of the whole etheric universe, to be moving with the world. But nevertheless, what we thus experience can strike us as something frighteningly unreal. By habit, we feel ourselves to stand solidly upon the earth in a physical body, 
but in this experience of the etheric we can feel uncertainty about our own existence. We feel ourselves to be lifted out of the physical world, but not yet firmly rooted in the world of spirit. This rootedness in the world of spirit does, however, come when the seeker achieves what I spoke of yesterday, the deep silence of the soul. As I described it in titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, we must come to a point where we no longer use the power we usually expend through a modification of breathing to speak the outward words of language upon the outflow of breath. But we must hold back what otherwise seeks to flow out into words. Nevertheless, we must engage this activity that is otherwise expended in speech. We must make the same inner efforts as otherwise used in speaking aloud, and by this means must come to deepened inner silence. And if the soul succeeds not only in coming to, as it were, the zero point in quotes of silence, but goes beyond this, goes deeper into what I called negative silence, below the level of mere silence, then we no longer drown out the sound of our spiritual being through the energies that seek to flow into the breath when we speak. Inwardly we keep developing the impetus to speak, but we hold speech back before it takes hold of the larynx. By holding speech back in this way, and yet still inwardly developing the speaking capacity, we come not merely to inward quiet and stillness, but to what I have called the soul's deep silence. This deep silence of the soul relates to speech, to the words that outwardly resound in the physical world as something that goes beyond the zero point of silence and deepens to a negative depth of stillness. But then from this deep silence there resounds what the spiritual world, or to use an ancient term, the Logos, seeks to reveal from the universe. Then we ourselves no longer speak, for we have become the instrument through which the Logos speaks. And then we become aware of our own astral body within us and the astral world of which I spoke yesterday. This astral world is substantially different from the world we experience in ordinary consciousness through our senses and combinative faculty of reason. In this world of the senses and combinative reason in the ordinary mind, we perceive the solid density of substantial things and material processes that unfold in the spatial dimension. Readers aside, I'm pronouncing the word combinative, which is combinative possibly, but I'm going to say combinative, end of readers aside. To put it in an easily accessible, though imprecise way, these things impress themselves upon our senses so that we can perceive them. On the one hand, therefore, we have our sensory experience of the world and our logical deductions about material things and processes. And, on the other hand, we have unreal thoughts, unreal feelings, as we might say, the unreal thoughts and feelings, whose relationship to reality has been the subject of philosophical dispute 
since time immemorial. Those who resort only to the ordinary mind will often regard mere thoughts and feelings that arise in their soul as something that drives them, as it were, to get a quick purchase again on material, substantial things so as to reassure themselves of their real existence. Thus our existence within thoughts and feelings seems not immediately real, and yet the moral world, the world of moral impulses, issues and flows forth from these thoughts and feelings. So we have before us a dual world, the compact and solid world of matter, which initially strikes us as reality, and then the seemingly less real world of thoughts and feelings, which give rise to our moral impulses. It can seem bothersome and burdensome to recognize that scientific proofs of the constancy of matter and energy lend outward reality a certain kind of eternity, whereas the moral world order, rising out of mere thoughts and feelings, is simply annihilated again in the great cemetery of material existence that inevitably follows from our hypotheses about natural phenomena. Thus the ordinary mind is faced by a duality between the material world on the one hand and the moral spiritual world on the other. We stand within this world, or rather within these two worlds that seem to have so little to do with one another. We stand in the midst of this. One aspect of our being is given up to the material world in which our digestive processes act from which in turn our drives arise, in which our senses receive impressions, and in which our powers of reason relate these sense impressions to each other. We become aware that we belong to this material world, but we also realize that our human dignity only exists if there is real meaning in the moral and spiritual impulses we acquire from thoughts and feelings whose reality appears to be uncertain. In ordinary consciousness, therefore, we are faced by a need to fill the physical body, by virtue of which we belong to the physical world, with qualities whose reality inevitably appears dubious. We see that moral and spiritual impulses do not prevail in outer nature. The stones follow iron laws of geology. The worlds of minerals is untouched by moral or spiritual impulses. The world of plants unfolds in its soft quietude, its blossoms called forth by a neutral sunlight and warmth. Here again it is hard for people to see any moral impulses streaming through the awakening warmth of the sun, its awakening light, to sow the tapestry of plants over the earth. Likewise, beholding the third natural kingdom, that of the animals, with whom our own physical organization has so much in common. It will be said that any moral quality that may be embedded in such forms no longer figures in a moral way. We see predatory animals hunting their prey without any right on our part to judge such seeming cruelty by moral standards. The animal, after all, occupies a place in the scheme of things, below the level at which we might assume or require a moral or spiritual impulse to be at work. 
And then in turn we look upon our own physical, material nature and we find that we too, in a part of our being, fall below that level as well. Yet if we are to fulfill our sense of human dignity, we face the need to introduce moral impulses into this lapsed being, into ourselves. Within ordinary consciousness, it is not possible to discern any harmonious accord between these disparate levels an interplay between physical material impulses and spiritual moral ones. Spirit and matter fall apart. We can look ahead at the life remaining to us until death and see that we will go on living in this split until we die, that we have this physical material organization into which we need to introduce moral spiritual impulses, but that nature shows us an absence of moral and spiritual impulses at work directly within natural laws. We see ourselves as confined within this dualism until we die. But if, as I have described, we hear our astral body and the world we belong to through it sounding to us out of the deep silence of the soul, then a world arises before the soul that ordinary consciousness cannot reach. A world, though, that we long for in our ordinary awareness when faced by this duality, this gulf between the physical material world and that of spirit and morality. Then we gain the prospect of a world that is no longer unreal, that appears to us as real as the solid, tangible world of the physical and sensory realm, and a world also that everywhere pours moral spiritual impulses into physical material ones. Here we gaze into a reality in which it is as if moral impulses at a higher level flowed into chemical processes in this earthly world. We gaze into a world in which there is no such thing as, say, hydrogen and oxygen, combining according to indifferent neutral laws of nature but where instead they follow moral impulses in so doing. Here there are no processes which do not at the same time possess a moral spiritual meaning. And now we recognize further that the world in which inward interpenetration of a truly creative moral spiritual potency with an enhanced realm of matter occurs is also the world we enter on crossing the threshold of death. Out of this world we descended into the physical earthly world from pre-earthly into earthly life. Through such recognition we see that only this physical world of earth is one of dualism where nature and spirit are sundered by a deep gulf and that we had nevertheless to be set down in this physical earth world in order to experience how spirit makes no headway in approaching matter here. We recognize ourselves to be the only creature within this physical world of earth that can, out of our own freedom, our own intrinsic and inmost impulses, establish this connection and bridge the gulf. If there were anywhere in this physical world whereby objective laws, a moral spiritual impulse 
flowed into a chemical process or into plant growth or into an animal drive, then, since the human being incorporates and encapsulates everything in the cosmos, we could never have attained freedom, could never bring about that connection between spirit and matter that proceeds from our own intrinsic being. But in human life on earth, we pass through two contrary conditions, that of waking life each day, from waking up to falling asleep, and that of sleep, from falling asleep to reawakening. While awake, we live very much in the world where spirit and matter are strictly sundered, where spirit cannot approach matter, let alone pervade it, where matter is powerless to raise its processes to the spiritual realm. But when we have reached the world I described as sounding up from the soul's deep silence, we can behold the activity to which we give ourselves up during sleep, that of our astral body. And then we know that in these interruptions to earthly life during sleep, we live in the world in which we can initially prepare to connect spirit with matter. During sleep, between birth and death, we weave within a thin, etheric astral element, a tissue woven in all our periods of sleep during our lifetime, which in turn, each time we wake up again, passes into the duality between spirit and matter. And in all that we weave in this way while asleep lives what we carry over the threshold of death with us, entering the world in which matter is no longer powerless to raise itself with its processes to spirituality, where spirit is not unable to approach matter. With everything we have thus woven in sleep, we enter the world in which everything that resembles matter raises itself to spiritual processes, in which spirit continually intervenes and engages in matter. And then we see that the duality between spirit and matter is only present in the world which we pass through in successive periods of life between birth and death. Furthermore, we come to know that we enter a quite different world, which appears to us only as if in a fleeting mirror image while we are asleep, when we prepare ourselves for its other reality. Once we have passed through the gateway of death, we really do enter this world, and then we weave further at the life we pass through between birth and death. But this weaving is not done in a realm of spirit sundered from matter, free of matter, one free of all connection with the earth and its eventual fate. No, we enter a world where what appeared to us on earth as in a fleeting picture during sleep, a soul spiritual mirage, now exists in a real world in which there is no duality between spirit and matter, in which spiritual substantiality continually penetrates material substantiality or one resembling the material, in which there are no mere laws of nature, but where the laws of nature are the lowest spiritual laws. Here there are no merely abstract spiritual laws, 
but lower spiritual processes, spiritual laws, play into material-like processes that are to be found there. Into this world we enter in order to pass through what lies between death and a further birth. We become acquainted with this world when out of the soul's deep silence we hear the Spirit, the universal Logos, though in its individual entities, speaking to us, not in a physically audible language, but in one that is not only inaudible, but less than inaudible, and which for that very reason is spiritually perceptible. As we hear this inner speech, which does not become outer words, and yet inwardly expends the effort that otherwise is only made manifest by means of the breath in outward speech, we come to the point of knowing the world from which we descended, a world of spirit, but one of whose reality there can no longer be the least doubt, no doubt at all, that we descended from it to physical existence and will ascend to it again after we pass through the gate of death. In this world all spirit is at the same time as active and effective as the material realm here on earth. In this world all matter is raised to a higher level where its density and coarseness no longer resist the influences of moral spiritual impulses. If we wish to enter the etheric imaginative world, we need in a sense to get beyond abstract dead thinking to a thinking that is inwardly alive. If we wish to reach the world of deep silence, that is, the world where all material-type activity is spiritual and all spiritual life is creative within matter, we need to go still further, not only reaching beyond ordinary dead thinking to a living form of thinking, but also delving beyond audible speech capacity to the inaudible speech capacity lying behind it. This lives in deep silence, from which not audible words, but the active Logos speaks out of stillness, precisely through this intensified stillness. But if we seek to progress further still, then as well as rising to a living thinking, which is more or less only a process of inner picturing, and coming to what, if you like, weaves and streams through the world, but speaks in this weaving and flowing out of deep silence, so that we feel ourselves within it as in an element streaming through the world, in which we ourselves stream with our hearing, with the third human being within us, then to go further still, we must raise ourselves to another process, to yet another occurrence within us. In living thinking we live with the etheric. At the second stage we live in the process we ourselves do not set in motion, but one illumined by the Logos, which otherwise lives only at a physical level in our speech. At a third stage we must discern something which is a counter-image to a process of destruction in physical life. Here, as well as enhancing and intensifying our thinking, enhancing and intensifying our capacity of speech by deepening it into stillness and silence, 
We must internalize what occurs when we do something on the earth, when we act. But we must understand that, quote, doing something, close quote, does not any longer now mean mere outward physical action. We act. We do something if we simply work inwardly in thoughts, for will is involved in that too. Everything by means of which we prompt ourselves to activity, whether inward or outward, is action and not mere passivity. But each time such activity is accomplished, even if only within our thinking, a physical process accompanies this action. In the same way that a brain process accompanies physical thinking, and as the breathing process is modified in physical speech, so in a will initiative of this kind that flows into action, an inner process occurs that we can compare with that annihilation of material substance we are aware of in all processes of combustion. If you look at how a flame destroys the substance of a candle, and I'm not going into the precise chemical processes that occur here, but just speaking of what we can observe with our usual physical senses, you see how this involves the destruction of something material in nature, irrespective of the fact that there is also a transformation of substance at work into something invisible. Such processes that resemble what happens when a flame destroys the candle wax always accompany any will initiative within us. Usually we're unaware of this, since it occurs below the level of the conscious mind. We know nothing of what happens between the intention we form to do something with our hands and the actual movement of the hand that ensues. We do not know how the intention, living in our thoughts, enters our muscles and then succeeds in raising our hand. We only become aware that this has happened when our hand moves. Yet, between the intention and the action, lies a process that resembles combustion. But within the human organism itself, we cannot speak in this way if, from a higher spiritual perspective, we observe this process of combustion that is the material process accompanying human will activity. If we observe this combustion process, we cannot ascertain that matter is only transformed. Rather, processes are destroyed that have first been kindled during ordinary digestion and nutrition. All the physical, combustion-related processes that occur as the basis for will activity, all these processes that resemble combustion, occur between the further course of the digestive process and the formation of blood. Where the blood forms, we can look into these combustion-type processes, and there we can also perceive how the human will sparks and gathers force. We gaze here into a declining material process, where, to put it accessibly, matter vanishes. And here we can become aware of something similar to what we perceive when meditating carefully and conscientiously, when we pass from a thinking stimulated from without to one that finds an inner impetus. Then, in those inner impulses of thinking, 
We have something that we only become aware of through our own activity. In the deep silence of the soul, we have something concealed behind our physical breathing process that resounds from the world of spirit and soul into an opposite negative space of stillness, the Logos resounding from silence. But we also find, if we delve below the processes that act within our organism as combustion, that cosmic will is at work beneath these processes of destruction. Just as the power of the Logos underlies the breath as it produces an outwardly audible word, so underlying this power of combustion continually active upon our organism, the creative power of cosmic will continually sparks and effervesces as it works into us. In the modified breath, the color red is shown on a diagram, that unfolds from our larynx to produce an outwardly audible word, we can perceive the spiritual element behind it, light blue, white, which arising from the soul's deep silence comes from an opposite direction to that of physical words and does so in a way we should not allow to issue forth through the larynx. Then we become acquainted with this spiritual element that brings to our awareness the silent, yet for that very reason, clearly articulating voice of the cosmic Logos. In the same way, in all processes that resemble combustion, red, see next drawing, which we can observe within our organism, we can observe the flowing, surging cosmic will, yellow, in which we ourselves participate. This is not Schopenhauer's, in quotes, thoughtless will, but a will that is everywhere pervaded by and effervescing with will. And now we feel the fourth human being within us. Wherever combustion processes hold sway in the physical organism, we feel creative processes at work. We feel ourselves embedded within the creative world. And within this creative world we now become aware of everything that is also creative in ourselves. Previously, when we perceived the third human being within us, the astral, we became acquainted with a world in which there is no distinction between matter and spirit. Now, we become acquainted with a world in which the spirit not only lives in all processes, but in which spirit is the creative principle in all processes, a world in which there are no material-like substances that are not formed by the spirit. Within us, we become acquainted with something whose nature is so creative that nothing resembling matter has not been or is not created by it within its realm. Before we found a world in which there is no spirit-matter duality, now we perceive one in which moral-spiritual impulses themselves are the only reality. As we gaze into this world, the corresponding drop of which holds sway within us, as we gaze into the fourth human being in us that participates in this world to which we have now raised ourselves, we come to know in this fourth human being a creative principle in us whose nature is as follows. It is not present anywhere in the world of our natural surroundings where spirit cannot penetrate matter, 
nor is it initially present in the world that appears to us within our own astral body. But it does come to the fore wherever a still higher principle, an actual being, enters this astral world. Just as we, as physical human beings, are surrounded by air that is permeable for us, so we become aware of the astral life, a spiritual atmosphere within which spirit beings wander. In the same way that we wander about in the air, the atmosphere, as physical beings and now we not only gaze into the logos of the astral world that speaks in a general way, but we also look upon spirit beings moving and living within this astral world. And here we come to know our own being as something that cannot now exist at all, but that has passed through this etheric world in pre-earthly existence and that existed in a previous life on earth we become aware that moral impulses from our former life or from several former lives indwell these destructive processes of combustion, that this fourth human being lives in us and is at the same time the creator of our fundamental destiny. Behind the fire in our body, we discover the creative power of the content of our previous life on earth which has now been able to ascend to the region where, as creative power, it counteracts the destructive power of combustion, because it is not present existence but long past earth life that has shed everything connected with the duality of spirit and matter, that has passed through the world of spirit and in this world of spirit has assumed the character of creative spirit. Here we discover, within what pulses up in the depths of our otherwise so hidden human will, something that sparks as impetus into us from what once existed in the same way that we now stand within earthly life. It has in the meantime become different, first being etherized, then living in an astral world, and in this astral world rising to a third and higher level. And now it appears to us as something contained in the only shadowy I capital of our present life as the creative and energetic will from former lives that grounds this I and fills it with reality. Thus we have risen from the physical nature of our being to our three higher entities, to etheric nature, to astral nature, our intrinsic soul being, and our true I-being, which is the outcome of former lives on earth, whereas the I that lives in my present earthly life only finds real existence during sleep. I described to you earlier how the astral body weaves and lives in the nature of the astral world while we sleep. But within this astral body, from the moment of falling asleep to the moment of reawakening, we still bear and possess the I as I described. But as yet, insofar as it is the eye of our present life, it is not able to work energetically into the physical body. This is where we share the destiny of the rest of nature, the duality of spirit and matter. Here the human being is confronted by the spirit that is not yet active in matter, and matter that is powerless to approach the spirit. 
Behind the curtains of existence, during sleep, there unfolds within us the conflict between spirit and matter that shines into us and consists in a desire to overcome this dualism in the outer physical world. This inner conflict also takes place in waking life in the will. Sleep conceals this from us to begin with, as long as we retain only ordinary consciousness. But in sleep is woven something which, when it is etherized and astralized again after death, ascends to be that creative power which will come to add a new element to us when we have again passed through the period between death and a new birth, adding to what surges in our will from long past lives on earth. We can look upon human life with these things in mind. Initially, we do not look down into the will, nor behind the veils of sleep. But true spirit vision reveals what is really at work there as creative principle in opposition to processes of combustion from long past lives on earth. And then we can become aware how former lives pulse as if through our will, preparing our destiny through moral impulses, and how what the human will accomplishes in a state of sleep, even while we're awake, out of drives, emotions, out of conscious intentions, weaves itself during sleep into the being that sleep conceals from us at present. In our next life on earth, this being will unfold as active will, as creative eye, pulsing through our blood in the combustion process of our future body. This creative eye, which will then be enhanced, complemented by what we have developed in this life on earth between birth and death, and have added to what came to us as described from former earthly lives. In this way we can study the four aspects or levels of the human being. And as we come to perceive the reality of these four members, we gain an overview of the whole of human life as well. As I showed yesterday, the nature of life on earth enlarges to encompass life in the cosmic ether, which reaches to a certain sphere, but reflects back the cosmic astral principle everywhere. We live in our astral body with this cosmic astral realm, which is imperceptible to earthly observation. And if we live our way into this cosmic astral realm, as I described it today, then not only does it resound as cosmic logos, but from the words of the cosmic logos, real beings of the lower and higher hierarchies approach us, as if emerging from real depths of the life of spirit, and amongst these is also our own spirit being from long past lives on earth. In this way, as we recognize the human being's nature, our soul's spiritual perception enlarges at the same time to encompass the cosmos, the universe. Not only the cosmos as a physical and etheric dimension, but also as a soul, spiritual one. Human knowledge thus becomes world knowledge. Just as we could never have only exhalation in physical life without inhalation, the two continually living in us in reciprocal interplay, in a continually alternating rhythm, so at a higher level 
we cannot acquire only knowledge of the human being or knowledge of the universe. As inhalation calls for exhalation, so knowledge of the human being calls for world knowledge. And as exhalation calls for inhalation, world knowledge calls for knowledge of the human being. World knowledge and knowledge of the human being are the systole and diastole of the physical soul-spirit life of the cosmos in all its grandeur. At a higher level, they cannot stand side by side and distinct, but only pass continually in and out of each other in continual interplay, pervading and penetrating each other in an eternally fluctuating rhythm as the immortal life of the cosmos itself to which the immortal human being also belongs. The end of Lecture 5